Ah, uh, yes, the kids' table. Um, you know, I, I always, I always hated the kids' table. Um, I don't know about how many of you uh, experienced that. If you had the kids' table at your Thanksgiving, I'm guessing you probably did at some point. I mean, just about everybody had a kids' table at Thanksgiving. That's like part of the American tradition. Just as much as the turkey and the stuffing, you have to have a kids' table over in the corner, you know, away from the adults so that they can not bother or interrupt, right? And the kids have their, uh, their little conversation and their food fights going on, and the, the adults just have you know, the quiet and the meaningful conversation. And um, part of what made me always just resent that, and probably you as well, is because even though we understood why we had to go there, I mean, the, the, the answer was always to make room, you know, because you had so many people and there just wasn't enough room, and, and you're going to have more fun anyway in your own table. We, we heard that, we understood that, but what we understood even more than that was uh, you're just not able yet to take part in the rest of the group. You're, you're not old enough. There was, there's an element... Innocent as it is, there is an element of, of you, know, you being the outsider at that point. And every kid knows that. Every kid knows that. So uh, every year growing up, whenever we had a lot of people around, I knew I was going to be relegated to the kids' table. And I would always try my best to get included in the big table. And it would never, ever work. And then finally, the day happened. It, it, it finally happened. When I was 25, and I was able to sit at the big kids' table... You know, the adult table. No, not really. It wasn't 25. It was, it was 20. But no, whenever it was, whenever it was, I was excited because I was no longer the outsider. I was part of the real group. I was part of the in crowd at my house, right? And on a very basic, very, very elementary level, that desire continues all throughout our life. No one ever wants to be made to feel like the outsider. No one. And, and any time you start to feel that way, that, that resentment, and that bitterness swells up. And if left unchecked and if left unaffected, you start to actually define yourself as an outsider, as someone not wanted, as someone not of worth, as someone not of value. We've all been on the receiving end of that. And unfortunately, sometimes, whether we intend to or not, we can make others feel that way as well. And it's never a good thing. It's never fun. It's never fun. Um, And when someone that you know is way beyond your league, you know, way out of your station, makes an effort to come down to your level and includes you and makes you feel welcome, valued, significant, wanted, When someone does that, it reaches us, it it moves us at a very deep level, right? It's meaningful when that happens. That's exactly what happened to a man named Mephibosheth. Now, don't try saying that five times fast. You'll get in trouble, okay? But Mephibosheth, it's the name of a man that lived a long time ago. We find his story not only in 2 Samuel 9, but the story of how he was encountered with someone he did not expect, and he certainly did not expect to receive the response that he did from this encounter in 2 Samuel 9. 
So that's where I want you to look in your copy of God's Word, whether that's digital or, or hardback or leather-bound, whatever it is. Get, get to 2 Samuel 9. We're going to spend a little bit of time there here this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 9. And I'll be reading from the NLT, the New Living Translation. Verse 1, here we go. One day, David, that's King David, one day David asked, Is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, what's wrapped up in that? You need to understand some background there. The reason he asked this is because he's king now. Saul is is out of the picture. Jonathan's out of the picture. He's king. He's reigning. He's ruling. But Jonathan, Saul's son, and David were best of friends. In fact, the Bible says that not many other or any other people in history had as close of a bond as they did. They were, they were closer than brothers, closer than family. There was a strong, strong bond between David and Jonathan. And, and actually, some of that bond led to some of the resentment even between Saul and his own son, Jonathan. But there was this, this incredible bond between the two. Before David even became king, before Jonathan lost his life, they had a long history together. And Jonathan, who sought the Lord with all of his heart, who honored the Lord, wanted God's will above anything else, told David early on, he said, David, I know you're going to be king after my father. I know God has anointed you as the next king of Israel. That was significant because who naturally stood to inherit the throne? Jonathan. He was the king's son. But Jonathan looked past that. He wasn't egotistical. He said, I know God has decreed that you're going to be king, not me. And you know what? That's okay with me. That's good with me. I just want God's will to be done. And I know you're going to be a great king, David. I want you to know you'll have my support. The only thing I ask of you is when you are king, please show kindness to me and my family. For the sake of our friendship, for the sake of our bond, swear to me that you will deal kindly with us after you come to power. The reason he he said that is because the common practice in this day was whenever a new monarch came to power, immediately what they would do is they would go and wipe out any remaining family members of the previous ruler. They did this to, to say to everybody... I'm in charge now. It's up. It's all about me now. But they also did it to preemptively stamp out any possible rebellion, any usurping of their throne or their authority. They just, they just did it you know, to, to avoid anything like that happening. That was the common practice. That was even expected. So Jonathan says, you know, I know that's the custom. You would be within your rights to do this, but I am appealing to you as your, your best friend, as, as your brother. Please show kindness to me and my family after you come into power. David swore that, and David is honoring that now. That's what's behind this question. Is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's Sake. Not for Saul's sake, not because he just was such a great guy and he, he deserved this, but for the sake of Jonathan, who I love and who I promised this to. Verse 2. 
he summoned a man, man named Ziba. You gotta love these Bible names, don't you? He summoned a man named Ziba who had been one of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba? The king asked. Yes, sir, I, I am. Ziba replied, I mean, can't you hear the shakiness in his voice? He's saying, okay, what's up here? Why am I being summoned? It's been found out that I was Saul's servant. What does this new king want? I know the history. Yes, sir, I am, Ziba replied. The king then asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. And after Ziba's eyes closed back to their normal level, Ziba replied, Yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. Uh, He is crippled in both feet. That's significant. That, That shows you something that's going to define this man. One of Jonathan's sons. He's crippled. Perhaps just to let David know And please understand, king, he's going to pose you no threat. There's nothing he can do. He's crippled in both feet. He's just, he's really innocent. Maybe, perhaps. Verse 4, where is he? The king asked. In Lodabar, Ziba told him, at the home of Machir, son of Amiel. So David sent for him and brought him from Machir's home. Verse 6, his name was Mephibosheth. He was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. When he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect. And David said, Greetings, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth replied, I am your servant. Now imagine, imagine Mephibosheth's feeling here. Imagine his his emotion that's going on. He knows... The, the custom, he knows what's expected of the monarchs of the day. He knows what is probably coming to him by rights. He knows all that Saul did to David. He knows all the trouble, all the problem. And, and then he, he hears this knock on his door of the home he's staying in. He doesn't even have his own home. He doesn't even have his own property. This shows you where he's at as a status. I mean, he's nothing. He's nothing. Maybe, just maybe, he's even in hiding that's possible. He's living in fear, living in hiding, just, just waiting and hoping, waiting against the day of, of that knock when there's guards at the door ready to collect him so the king can deal justice. Hoping that doesn't happen, but waiting for it. And then he hears, and he's thinking, is this it? Is this finally the day? Is this what I've been, been afraid of? Is it finally come? And he hears... Mephibosheth, the king, has requested your presence. And I mean, here's this cripple, forgotten heir to the throne of Saul that has been now given to David. And he, can, you, can you see him? Can you see him just trying to stand up and trying to make his way over as best, best he can to the door to go with the guards? Arms shaking, not just because of weakness, but because of fear. And he finally goes, and he's, he's there now before the king, before King David. As he bows down, he says, I am your servant. 
Verse 7, David sees the fear. He sees him trembling. He sees what is going on in, in this man's mind and heart. It's, it's all over him. It's obvious. And he says this, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, David said. I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. At this point, you know, don't you just see his head start to raise up? You know, um, um, what? I'm sorry? Sorry? I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul. And you will eat here with me at the king's table. Whoa! This was huge. This was never done, ever. No one did this. No one did this. And, and that's part of what led to the response from Mephibosheth in verse 8. Look, look at what he says. Mephibosheth bowed respectfully, so we, we see that he's, he started to raise up. And who wouldn't? I mean, that fear was replaced with amazement. That fear was, was leading him to say, did I, did I hear that right? You know, it's like, let me, let me check my, my hearing aid here. Um, did, did I just really hear you say, not only are you not going to kill me, not only am I not going to be thrown into prison, you're going to restore to me my, my family land? What? And then he hears that, and he, so he bows respectfully again, and he exclaims, Who is your servant? Talking about himself. Who is your servant that you should show such kindness to a dead dog like me? And that was a statement of extreme worthlessness. There was nothing lower, nothing more undesirable than this. I mean, to say that, especially in this culture and this context, was saying, I am the lowest of the low. I am scum. I am nothing. I am not worth a single glance my direction from you. I'm not worth any of your attention. I'm not worth any of your favor. Who am I? What am I that you, king, would show me such kindness? Verse 9, then the king summoned Saul's servant Ziba and said, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and servants are to farm the land for him to produce food for your master's household. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will eat here at my table. Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Ziba replied, Yes, my lord the king, I am your servant, and I will do all that you have commanded. And from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly at David's table, don't miss this part, like one of the king's own sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, From then on, all the members of Ziba's household were Mephibosheth's servants. And Mephibosheth, who was crippled in both feet, the Holy Spirit didn't want us to forget that fact, wanted us to recall how unworthy this man is, how undeserving, how unlikely it was for this man to receive such honor. Mephibosheth, who was crippled in both feet, lived in Jerusalem And ate regularly at the king's table. Isn't that awesome? And and that phrase, 
eating regularly at the king's table and being there, that's not just about the food. That's not just saying he had a really good meal three times a day. That was signifying that he was brought into the king's innermost circle, where only those most trusted were, where those usually only that were family or certainly the closest people to the king would be allowed to sit. It was a place of honor. It was a place of prestige. It was a place of status. So you had this man, Mephibosheth, who by most people's reckoning would be considered a traitor, a rebel, someone to deal with and snuff out unless he, he, he tried to usurp the, the throne of David. But beyond that, I mean, he's just this, this cripple. Nothing more really than a, than a beggar. Living not even in his own home, someone else's home, possibly in hiding, out of fear. And he's brought before the king. And he receives kindness. And he receives Mercy, I mean, astonishing favor from David toward Mephibosheth. It's what he received. And, and then in, in addition to the, the favor and the kindness, he's given this place of honor that he will actually sit at the king's table. Not because he's so good and David just has to have him there. Not because he's so deserving of that. Not because there's anything in him that should make David do that naturally. No, because of David's own grace toward Mephibosheth. All for the sake of Jonathan. All because of the relationship Jonathan had with David. That's what David was honoring. And Mephibosheth was an unworthy recipient of that kindness, of that relationship, of that promise. My friends, this is much more, much more than just a powerful story. This is much more than just a beautiful display of David's kindness to poor Mephibosheth. This is our story. We are Mephibosheth. We, too, are nothing but a a, a worthless cripple, having nothing that we can bring of any worth, of any value, of any use to the King, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, God Almighty. There's nothing that we have of any significance that should make him look at us and say, oh, I just have to have them with me. Oh, we've just got to do whatever we can to get them with us. No, not at all. Nothing of value. Nothing intrinsically worthwhile in and of ourselves. We too, like Mephibosheth, can rightly say before God, What are we that you would take notice of us? We are just a dead dog. That's a fitting response. But look at what Romans 5, 6 says. Romans 5, 6 says this. With everything we just read about Mephibosheth, keep that in mind as you look at this. Romans 5, 6. When we, you and me, the human race, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Are you thankful for that today? Ephesians 2, 4 through 6 says this. But God is so rich in mercy 
And he loved us so much that even though we were dead, not good and seeking him, not having all these great gifts and talents and skills that we could contribute to the kingdom with. No, though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him. Seated us with him. You know, the Bible says that after Jesus Christ accomplished all that the Father had for him, after he went to the cross, after he purchased salvation and redemption and freedom, the Bible says he sat down at the right hand of the Father. His work was accomplished. Everything was finished. And he sat down at the place of honor. But look at what this says. Get what this says, church, Christian, beloved of God. It says that you, though you were dead, though you, you had nothing to contribute, not only did he give us life, when, when Christ was raised, he raised us with them. And when Christ was seated in honor, he seated us with him. Isn't that awesome? He seated us with him in the heavenly realms. Why? Not because of anything in us. Not because of any worth or value. Look at what it says. Because we are united with Christ. It's all because of Jesus we're alive, like we just sang. It's all because of Jesus we are honored. It's all because of Jesus we are loved and accepted. It's all because of Jesus we have the favor of God Almighty rather than His wrath. Just like David, for the sake of Jonathan showed kindness to Mephibosheth, who was crippled in both feet. Lame. No worth and value to a king. But because of another, Mephibosheth received the grace and kindness and mercy and love and favor and status that King David offered. Do you see that connection? Isn't it beautiful? That we, crippled by sin, lame by our selfishness, totally void of anything good to offer our king, yet because of his son, for the sake of another, he pours out love and mercy and grace and kindness and then gives us status that we can never have on our own. That's the grace of God. Here's what I want you to know about all of this. Here's, here's what I could sum up in one statement that I, I want you to just really think about and focus on and, and contemplate and believe and remember and apply. It's this. Our seat at the Father's table, our seat at the Father's table was paid for by the Son. And the cost was His life. Think about that, Christian. We have a seat at the king's table. We have a seat at, at the father's table. And it was paid for by the son. By his own son. See, our seat at the table cost us nothing. There was no fee involved to us. Not because there was no fee at all. But it's because the fee was too much for us to ever pay. 
The cost for the the seat that we had pulled out for us was too high for us ever to pay. And yet the father paid it anyway. He said, I love you so much and I want you at my table so much that I'm willing to send my very son and he's going to pay the price for you. He's going to pay the cost of that seat at my table and the cost is infinite. It's unfathomable. It's his very life. And he did it for us anyway. Out of love and out of grace. Think about that. The Father sent His Son to die for us, His enemies. His enemies. And though we had nothing to offer Him, like Mephibosheth had nothing to offer David, because we were truly a worthless cripple, a dead dog before Him, yet He showed us mercy, grace, and love. And then, and then He carried us. God the Father, Almighty God, carried us to His table. Hallelujah. Praise God for that. Wounded and forsaken I was shattered by the fall Broken and forgotten Feeling lost and all alone Summoned by the king Into the master's courts Lifted by the savior Cradled in his arms I was carried to the table Seated where I don't belong Carried to the table Swept away by his love And I don't see my brokenness When I'm seated at the table of the Lord, I'm carried to the table. The table of the Lord. Fighting thoughts of fear, wondering why he called my name. Am I good enough to share this cup? The world has left me lame. Even in my weakness, Savior called my name. In His holy presence, I am healed and unashamed. I was carried to the table. Seated where I don't belong Carried to the table Swept away by His love And I don't see my brokenness anymore 
Thank you, Matthew and David. Oh, my friend. That can be your song today. If it's not already, it can be. There is no one here that is beyond the reach of that kind of love and grace. And if you've received it already, if you've already been given the seat at the Father's table and you've sat down by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, praise him, thank him. Have a heart full of love and astonishment toward him. Live for him. Because that's true of you. And it's true of me. Well, here's our response to this. It's, it's really very simple and yet it's very profound. As we think about all this, as we realize all this, as we know this is all true of us as it was Mephibosheth, Our response is thankfulness and witness. It's the only fitting response. That we would have a response of thankfulness, not just on one day of the year, every moment of every hour of every day, of every week, month of the year, of our whole life, that we would just be full of true, constant thankfulness realizing that no matter what circumstances change around me, no matter what situations come up, and and no matter what I'm facing, no matter what I lose, no matter what I lack, that I am always going to have a seat at the Father's table because of Jesus Christ. Thankfulness for that. And then that that thankfulness will result 
and a constant and a powerful and a courageous witness. Thankfulness and witness. Psalm 105.1 says this. Give thanks to the Lord and proclaim His greatness. Don't keep it quiet. Don't keep it in you. Don't keep it just something that you know about and thank Him privately for. Yes, do that, but proclaim it. Shout it. Let everybody know. Proclaim His greatness. Let the whole world know what He has done. Tell everybody, you may not think much of me. I may not look like much to you on the outside. I may not have much to offer you, humanly speaking. I may not have much to contribute politically or monetarily. But you know what? I was crippled. I was lame. I had nothing to offer. I was an enemy of God. I was a rebel. And yet he reached down and he loved me. And by the sacrifice of his son, he brought me to his table where I eternally will dwell. If that's true of you today, praise Him, thank Him, and proclaim it to everyone else around you. Amen? Let's pray together. With Thanksgiving coming up, oh my, we have so much to be thankful for. Not just physical blessings, though we certainly have that. We are so blessed in this nation. We are rich beyond measure, really. So we do have a lot to be thankful for in terms of that. But beyond that, if all of that goes away, we have a seat at the Father's table. But it's nothing that you can do to be seated there. Nothing on your own. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. It's something totally given by grace and by mercy, free to you because it costs Jesus everything. And how great would it be for this Thanksgiving, this Thanksgiving, to know without any doubt that you, yes, you, have a seat at the Father's table forever. It's only possible through Jesus. So I just have to ask, is there anyone here who has not yet surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? He is not your Savior and your Lord. You're still outside of Christ. My friend, He loves you so much that He brought you here today to hear this offer. That there is a seat open for you at His table. If you will by faith accept it. By faith accepting Jesus. I wonder, is there anyone here that would say, no, I have not given my life to Jesus Christ. I have not committed to Him as my Savior and Lord, but I want to today. I want to know that I am in Christ. I want to know I have a seat at the Father's table. Is there anyone that would say, yes, that's me? Let me know by just raising your hand. Anyone at all? Anyone. There's no shame in admitting this. Anybody at all? Okay. Then Christian, let me just challenge and encourage you Ask the Holy Spirit to totally wreck your world again with the realization of all that you have in Christ. Because we build up our world, our own world. We build up our walls. We go about our lives and we forget and we get distracted and we, we, just, we lose sight of the magnitude of all that we have because of Christ. Ask the Spirit to just totally saturate your mind and heart anew 
with all that is true of you. And thank him for the seat at the Father's table. And then go out and proclaim that to your family and your friends and your co-workers and, yes, even strangers. All in Jesus' name. Father, thank you for your amazing word. Thank you for the example of Mephibosheth. Thank you for the example of, of the kindness of David. Thank you that we can see ourselves right there in that conversation. We can see ourselves before the king saying, I'm unworthy. And yet we hear from the king like Mephibosheth did, yes, you are unworthy, but it's because of love that I'm I'm making you worthy. I'm embracing you as a son. Here, sit at my table. We hear those words just like Mephibosheth heard from David. May our response be exactly like his before David, and and even more so, Father. May we not be the same because of what you've done for us. Thank you, Father, for the seat at your table given to us by grace and mercy and paid for by your Son. It's in his matchless name I pray with praise. Amen.